0: So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to come under and hear God's word. Father, we thank you that we not only come to worship you and to share in fellowship with one another, we also come to hear from your word. Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have in this country to hear your word read and preached. Lord may you change us. May your word encourage us today and change us all the more to live for Christ, to be passionate to serve him because he is worthy of our worship is worthy of our lives, is worthy of our all. So Lord prepare our hearts. Speak to us today and may you be glorified. Amen.
1: The first reading is from Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And to chapter 26, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And to chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted.
2: Good morning everyone, good to see you this morning, Uh, thanks for being here Uh, and just before we get into today's sermon, I just thought I'd mention briefly this afternoon we are meeting for the first of our seminars, today we'll be thinking about sickness and death in the light of the ends. just a light topic to get us started off with but a really, really important one, Uh, it'll be at 3.30pm here. Uh, If you're unable, uh, I do encourage you to make it um, if you're able to. If you're unable to, we will be recording part of it and uploading it to our YouTube channel so you can catch up on some of the content from that time then. But if you're able to come back here at 3.30, I trust it will be an encouraging and helpful time as we think about uh, how we can think about and prepare for our own sickness, our own death in the light of God's good end. Uh, But what we're we're doing over these weeks is something different to what we normally do. Uh, We would normally read together through a book of the Bible. Uh, This week, uh, over this series, we're looking at a theme across the whole Bible. And what we're really doing is telling a story. Uh, It's not just any story, though, but the story. Uh, It's the great one true story that can embrace and lift up and give meaning and purpose to your little story uh, and to my little story, to our own stories. It's the story of the end of everything, according to the Bible. Uh, And maybe this has been you. Perhaps you've been a bit confused over the last few weeks, as I've been up here, and we've been thinking about the end of everything, and pretty much we've always been looking backwards. We've been looking into the past. Uh, Maybe that's a bit confusing uh, or even a bit frustrating to be looking at a, a series on the end of everything and looking backwards. Well, that's not an accident that that's how we've been spending our time. Uh, that's not an accident, and today I hope to help us to see why, to see why that is. Uh, what we've done so far is to, we've seen the way in which God's good end, uh, that's right at the very end of the Bible, was actually there right at the beginning. His purpose for his world was woven into his creation right from the very beginning. You can see it up there. Hopefully that's familiar if you've been with us um, over the weeks. God created this world for his own glory. He created a people in his image who were given dignity and purpose to rule over the place he had made, forever enjoying his loving presence. That was kind of our summary of this, this good end for which God created you and me and all things uh, but last week we reflected how that end was brought under this huge threat, this huge threat to God's good end. Uh, and, and so hopefully again this will be familiar if you were with us last week. Humanity rejected God's loving rule uh, and each of us now live for not for his glory but for our own glory. Uh, and doing that puts us under what the, what the Bible describes as God's curse. All our relationships are corrupted. Our relationships with each other, with with God, even our relationship with the world around it, and the creation itself, comes under this curse. But we also saw last week God's incredible faithfulness to that end, with towards which He, was, he's, he created the world, and He's always working all things to that original end. He, he's made incredible promises. Uh, that, that we looked at last week. These incredible promises that he would fulfill through remember Eve's descendant, the snake crusher, Adam's seed, the one who would bring blessing to the world, King David's son, who would set up an eternal kingdom. And all those promises, they reached this high point in the Old Testament prophets. Which is where we kind of landed last week with this idea of this the day of the Lord that the prophets looked forward to this coming day of the Lord when God would act in power to fulfill his promise, to glorify himself in judgment and in salvation, to to gather people under his king, his Messiah, into his eternal kingdom, and not only that, to renew the whole world, the entire world. He promised on this day to be present with his people in an incredible and new and this complete way. Okay, so that's kind of a cook's two or three where we've gone through the story so far. Um, and the amazing, the incredible thing that you encounter as you turn the pages into the New Testament, the amazing news of the New Testament is that God's promised end for his people and his worlds has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the end, the end is not primarily a set of events in the future, it's not a code to crack. The end, God's goal in his creation, the fulfilment of his good purposes is seen in a person, in Jesus. There is a future aspect to all of this, which we'll get to eventually, uh, but it's really critical that we see this first and that we rejoice in and rest in Jesus, the greatest name. Uh, The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So, how does Jesus do this? How does he bring about God's good end for his world? How does he fulfill this day of the Lord? Uh, He's not what you might expect. He's not what the people of Israel, when Jesus came, expected. Many of them were waiting for an earthly fulfillment to these promises, for a military or political Messiah to free them from their enemies, uh, from the brutal Roman Empire, and set up God's physical kingdom. But Jesus comes and does and says something utterly surprising. Remember what Jesus says? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, he comes and shows that the real enemy, the real enemy is not Rome. It's not any political force. The real enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness. It's Satan and sin and death. And here's where he sort of turns this uh, everything upside down. He's, he shows that the weight of victory is not through military force, but through loving your enemies. Through sacrificing yourself, through the way of the cross. Well, lots of people don't believe Jesus when he comes. This isn't the kingdom God promised to us. And you can kind of understand that. Some of the Old Testament promises seem to be framed in terms of this kind of earthly kingdom. So, what's going on there? When Jesus comes and says, He is the end, the, the one who fulfills God's promises. Uh, he's come to set up this um, kingdom, not of this world. Well, I want you to imagine a scene. I, ma- I want you to imagine a father back in the early 1900s. Here he is. Uh, and this, this dad promises his young son a horse and buggy when he turns 21, when he gets older. Okay, so he promises his young son a ho- horse and buggy. The years pass. But in the meantime, Henry Ford starts mass-producing his Model T Ford, and the time comes that he gets older, the years pass on, the dad gets older, and eventually he buys his son a car instead. There it is. <laughs> there you go. Now, the question is Has he failed in his promise? No. He has super fulfilled it. The fulfillment is exactly in line with what was promised. It's the same goal being reached, a method of transportation for his son. But the fulfillment doesn't look exactly like what was expected. It's a fuller and better fulfillment. The promise really is truly fulfilled in this surprising and surpassing way. Okay, it's not a perfect example, but it's, there's something like that going on in, in the way in which the New Testament sees Jesus fulfilling all of the Old Testament. He, he actually fulfills it but in a faster, passing way that leaves us breathless in wonder and awe. Uh, How does he do this? How does Jesus do this? How does he super-fulfill God's promise? How does he perfectly and wonderfully bring about God's good end? Well, what I want to do is just quickly paint a broad brushstrokes picture of this. Uh, before switching to, uh, sort of zooming in on a a much, I think a really powerful case study for us to see the way in which this comes about. How are we going? Uh, So big, broad strokes, um, picture, big picture sort of stuff about the way in which Jesus fulfills this day. So, remember last week, the day of the Lord would be one in which God was glorified through judgment and salvation. God would be glorified. He would bring himself glory. Uh, and there's one place in the New Testament, I mean, this is all through the New Testament, actually, but there's one place that's really powerfully um, says this, and if you're in home group this week, ho- hopefully you would have looked at this passage. It's the start of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, the opening verses, uh, says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Wow, <laughs> I mean, what a passage that is. This, Jesus is the son of the father, the radiance of his glory. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. And he, you see that he has accomplished God's, both God's judgment and his salvation at the cross. And That's where he provided purification for sins. He bore the judgment of God on himself as the ultimate purifying sacrifice. He was saved and vindicated by his Father in his resurrection. He was exalted to glory to his right hand. God's glory has been made known and has been won in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But not only that, Jesus is is God's glory. He's also God's person. Uh, He is the true human, the one who succeeds where everyone else fails. Uh, As we've read through Matthew's Gospel, hopefully we've we've seen this. The way in which Jesus is is presented as like this new humanity, this new start for for humanity, like a new Adam, uh, the one who faced the temptation of the evil one and didn't give in. Uh, Jesus begins this new people, this new humanity. Uh, Paul in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See what's going on there? Uh, Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory, but he's also the perfect human. He comes and fulfills what Adam failed to do and starts this new humanity it's not only that. Remember, God's glory, God's people, God's place. Jesus is also God's place. And this is where it gets kind of a little bit mind-bending. So stick with me. <laughs> Through the Old Testament, God creates these special places uh, of his particular blessing and presence. That was what the Garden of Eden was in the, in the creation, uh, in the whole world. Uh, when Israel was set up as a nation, they entered the Promised Land, right at the heart of their nation was this, one of these special places, this special place of the temple. That was where God's relationship with them was focused. Uh, it, it, was a, it was like a, a token, a sign of the new creation. Uh, in a broken and sinful world, here is where God is acting to bring about Restoration. Uh, and, and when the prophets speak of this day of the Lord, they often talk about this new and glorious temple at the centre of God's new world. And, and one of the stunning things that Jesus claims, one of the things that ends up getting him killed, and we heard it referenced in the Bible reading today, is that he comes and he claims to be the super-fulfillment of that promise he is the true temple, the true place where you go to meet with God and to hear from him. Uh, you get this in the opening chapters of John's Gospel particularly. Uh, John opens by saying that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, uh, it's, a, it's literally he, he tabernacled among us. And if you know uh, the tabernacle, it was the, the, the temple before there was a physical, uh, a um, stone temple. It was the tents that moved around with the people of Israel, the place of God's presence among his people before the temple. So Jesus is, has tabernacled. He is the true tabernacle. And, and you keep reading and you get to chapter 2 in John's Gospel Uh, Jesus goes to the physical temple in Jerusalem and judges it. He drives, clears the courts, and he sort of gets confronted, and he's asked to prove his authority to do this. And he says uh, in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body his body. You get this in other places, it's referenced and picked up like 1 Peter and other places like that. But do you see the point? Jesus is the true, he is the super fulfillment of God's place, the true temple. And that leads straight into the last aspect of this coming day of the Lord that the prophets looked forward to. The one who tabernacled with us was none other than the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And again, right at the beginning of John's Gospel. Now that's what you read. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's incredible. God's true presence now among his people in this new, immediate, incredible way. Okay, so there's this form of words that gets used again and again in the Bible to describe God's covenant relationship with his people. We saw it last week in Jeremiah 31, uh, talking about the, the, this new covenant that he'd promised. It's really simple, but it's profound, and it's all through the Old Testament, and, the, and actually the, in the New Testament too. Uh, It's this, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's kind of this summary encapsulation of his covenant relationship. I will be their God, they will be my people. And do you see after all of that how Jesus does, he, he super fulfills this covenant promise. He is God with us, the place of God's presence and glory but he's also us with God, the true Adam, even the true Israel, the one who stands in our place, who is the head of a new humanity. So, friends, there's lots in there, but Jesus fulfills God's goal. He is the end, and praise his holy name forever. All right. Well, that's been... Uh, an untidy, quick, big (laughs) brushstrokes picture. What I want to do do now is just zoom in a little bit uh, and look at one way. I think this really powerfully comes out to us in the gospel, particularly Matthew's gospel. Um, The the hope of the Old Testament, the prophetic hope, is like this, this diamond that you hold up and it's got all these facets to it and you keep turning it around and seeing all different parts of it. It's the same diamond, but each part sort of reflects a different glory. Well, one of the most glorious of those facets of this diamond is this figure in the Old Testament called the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Uh, He doesn't come up a lot, but this this figure really uh, is focused in on the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Uh, so this phrase, the son of man, it can just mean a human person. It does get used that way. But in Daniel 7, this title, the son of man, gets lifted to incredible heights. Uh, Daniel describes this vision he had when Israel was in exile. Uh, it's a crazy vision. All right, if we go back, just stick with the um, picture for a moment. It's, it's this crazy vision. Uh, these mutant creatures crawl out of a dark sea. There's these four beasts that symbolise kings and empires that are opposed to God and His people, and it's a scene of chaos. But in all this chaos, Daniel then sees. He sort of sees, gets a glimpse into the heavenly throne room, and he sees the Ancient of Days. That's how he talks about God. And all of a sudden, these terrifying beasts, this chaos, is dealt with, and dealt with by God. And then you read this in Daniel 7 uh, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Whoa, <laughs> this, this son of man, this, this human person is exalted to this amazing position. It's really, it's an unthinkable position, actually. Because you see, he's sh- this, this person, this figure shares things that only God can have. Authority, glory, sovereign power, the worship of all peoples. And it's kind of a real mystery how this can be. Uh, it's blasphemy for any mere human to claim this for themselves. And one of the most shocking things that Jesus does as he comes is he, there's lots of ways that people talk about Jesus, but Jesus' favourite way to talk about himself is to use this title as the, the son of man, the son of man. It is incredible. He saw what he was doing as bringing fulfillment to this moment, this moment that was like this, this kind of high point and almost a summary of Old Testament hopes of this future kingdom. And that's, uh, that's what we saw in the readings today that were read out for us, kind of some snapshots through Matthew's Gospel. Um, The the first reading, we saw that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of heaven was near, this promised rule of God. Uh, But later in Matthew, where we want to focus is, uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples. We didn't read this one out, but later in Matthew, Jesus is talking, and he says this in Matthew 16. It should be on the screen. Uh, He says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it's kind of like, you can imagine the scene, right? Jesus says this to his disciples, and I I imagine there's like, you could hear a pin drop, and they're all sort of gobsmacked. They know who the Son of Man is. They know what it means for him to come into his kingdom. And like, really? Daniel 7? (laughs) That Son of Man coming true? Uh, and, And it kind of gets more and more... Sort of mysterious in a way as you keep reading Matthew's gospel because it doesn't look like Daniel 7's coming true at all. Jesus ends up betrayed, you know the story, arrested, put on trial. He hardly looks like the divine, eternal king of all nations. And then you get what we read today, one of the most incredible things in Jesus' trial. We had it read from Matthew 26. He's being interrogated, and the high priest says to him, in verse 63, I, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of, on the clouds of heaven. Okay, wow. <laughs> Do you see what he says there? From now on, this is what you will see. From now on, this is the reality of the world. From now on, the Son of Man will have ascended into his glory and be reigning over all things. He's saying Daniel 7 is true in me. This is what Jesus is saying. And right now, as I'm on trial and going to my death, and you can kind of get like this is, it's a mind-blowing sort of thing, Right? From the perspective of the world, Jesus' crucifixion, utter failure, total failure. But from God's perspective, it was the moment of his great enthronement as the Lord of all. He was mocked with a crown of thorns. But what we meant for evil, God turned to the greatest good. And as at the cross, Jesus defeated The world's true, deepest enemies. Sin and the devil and even death. He took their curse into himself. He extinguished it. And after his resurrection from the dead, what does he say? We read it also in Matthew 28. What does he say in verse 18? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. As you keep going in the story, uh, not on the screen, but you might remember this, at the start of the book of Acts, what happens? Jesus ascends to his father. And Luke, who wrote Acts, makes this really interesting meteorological um, observation. (laughs) He makes a weather report. But of course, it's not just a weather report. You know what uh, what I'm talking about? As as, uh, Luke talks about Jesus ascending to the father, and he talks about the clouds being covered by the clouds in Acts chapter 1. It's not just a weather report. It is a direct fulfillment of Daniel 7. The Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days. He has received his kingdom, and he is reigning now. So, friends, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord right now. All of God's promises are yes in him. Sin has been defeated. A new creation has begun. God has come to us and we have come to God in him. And yet, (laughs) and yet. That's not your experience of life now, is it? Uh, Sin and death still corrupt. The world still groans. Conflict and chaos still hurts. We don't experience that relationship with God that we were made for. So if the end has been reached in Jesus, it sure looks like it hasn't been reached in me. (laughs) Or in you. Uh, Or for any of us. Or for this world. Groaning under the weight of sin as it is. And that's because it hasn't. The end hasn't yet been reached for you and for me, for this world. Not yet. Right, one South African theologian, a guy named Adrio Koenig, uh, he gives this really helpful framework to help us figure this out or, or think about it. He talks about the way in which Jesus has achieved the end for us. For us, in our place, apart from us. He has achieved the end in and of himself. He is now achieving the end in us, in these last days. That's his work within us. And he will achieve his end with us on the last day. He's achieved it for us. He is achieving it now in us. And he will achieve it with us on the last day. Uh, That's kind of what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, the way in which he achieves this end in us. That's next week. Um, In this overlapping of the ages, the end has come, uh, but it's not yet come. Um, It's true in Jesus. It's not yet true in us. That's next week. And the week after, we'll think about how he achieves it with us uh, on on the, the last day, which is really the first day of life and of of the new creation. But for today, I want to just land with just two thoughts for us, friends, two uh, encouragements, two things that I think come out of reflecting on this way in which Jesus has achieved God's promises and purposes. Um, This is the basis for our hope. This is the basis for our hope that the most important fundamental thing has already been done. It's already been done. It's already accomplished. The hard stuff has all been done. What remains is critical. It's a revealing, an unveiling of what is already true in Jesus. So I wonder whether you are tempted to, like all of us in different times, tempted to doubt the promise of God, uh, to doubt the hope that is ours, to doubt God's forgiveness for you, to doubt God's power or his goodness in this age, friends, today is a day to come back to this as your solid rock when everything else gives way. The end has already come in Jesus fully, decisively. He has died for your sin. He has risen from the dead for your life. He is now the ascended Lord. All the hard stuff has been done. So this is the basis of our hope. We look forward to the future in certainty because of what has been done in the past. Uh, The second thing I want to just encourage us with and uh, is is that thinking about Jesus as the end gives us great it's not only the basis of our hope it's the motive for our discipleship here and now what I mean I I want to just talk a little bit about this Matthew 28 the end of Matthew 28 is quite famous Uh, we had it read out for us All authority has been given to me, uh, so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. I think I sort of got that right. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, Did I mostly get it right? Uh, It's it's well known to us, right? What's really interesting, so go and make disciples of all nations. Bear witness to, to the gospel. To all people of the earth. That's kind of the, the, the big sort of command Jesus gives to his disciples here. What's really interesting is to notice the motive for that that Matthew gives us here. There's lots of, re- there's lots of motives and good reasons to do that. But what does Matthew highlight here? All authority has been, has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. You see, if Jesus is the end, the risen and exalted son of man, then the primary reason to become his disciple, to entrust your life to him, is not actually about you. It's all about him. It's because he is Lord and he is worthy of your worship. There's no rival to him. There's no Lord like him the one who is God with us and the one who brings us to God. So, friends, becoming a Christian, maybe you're um, not yet a Christian among us, becoming a Christian is is not a matter of kind of deciding on balance that maybe Jesus might be the best option for you for now. Um, You'll take the good stuff from him as long as he suits you. It's also not a matter of sort of waiting for some distant... Mystical experience that you're waiting for. Yes, some great religious experience. Becoming a Christian, friends, is simply recognizing reality. Seeing who Jesus is now and bowing your heart to Him. Bowing your heart to Him not only as your personal Lord, yes, that, but as the Lord. The Lord for all people, the one who has all authority. And friends, if you haven't done that, do it today. There's nothing to stop you. So that's a motive for becoming Jesus' disciple because he is worthy, he is Lord. And friends, that's a motive for, for Christian people to share Jesus too. We don't share him because he's a good product that we think might fulfill people's needs. Uh, One of the big things that comes out of this is Jesus is not a means to your end. Jesus is the end. Jesus isn't a means to some other end. Jesus is the end. Making disciples of all nations is about joyfully proclaiming good news. It's good because he is the good Lord who has given himself for his world and his people. And it's news. We proclaim him as the one who alone deserves all honour and glory, the worship of all people, the worship of your hearts. And that for us is actually, I think, a really liberating thing. It's not up to you to change hearts It's not up to you to come up with sophisticated arguments. Uh, Certainly not up to you to manipulate people. We simply bear joyful witness to Jesus, the risen Lord of all, in whom we have found life and peace and hope. And pray for us. Our God, we thank you that in Christ you have acted with such power and wonder and majesty. You have reconciled us to yourself. You have reconciled us to one another in him. And even, even this world, we in Christ, in him risen, we see the first fruits of your new creation. And so, Father, we pray for ourselves that we might base our lives, our confidence, our hope on this great and unchanging truth. That Jesus is the end. And that fueled by that we might give this kind of joyful witness to him. Uh, give us grace and strength and courage. Uh, give us wisdom to do that we pray. And we pray that for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.